Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. We're back in Davos at the World Economic Forum, where we kicked off this podcast in 2020. I'm excited to share with you my conversations this year with amazing leaders who are driving global change. In this episode, I'm speaking with Diana Marrero, Vice President of Strategic Development for Foreign Policy Magazine. She shared her work around educating readers on the geopolitical landscape and expanding the offerings across channels. It was wonderful to hear her story as a Cuban-American and how she has elevated the Hispanic and Latino community throughout her career. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Diana, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's great to see you here in Davos. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'd love to start out by talking about your career right now at Foreign Policy. Can you tell us what you do there? Sure. I'm the Senior Vice President for Strategic Partnerships at Foreign Policy Magazine. And that means that I lead our team that works with incredible partners from the private sector, from governments, civil society on a whole host of projects from events at Davos and other major global convenings to really very cool podcasts that you should listen to as well. And I can talk about that later, but also research and analytics. So we work with a huge variety of partners on topics from healthcare to technology, to gender equality. So it's a really varied group of topics and partners. So very lucky to be able to lead those projects. So is coming to Davos sort of one of the big moments in time for you of the year, just given how many people here and what a global audience it is? It is, absolutely. It's great to be here. We have a small team here on the ground. Our editor-in-chief and our CEO are here and several other of my colleagues. So this is a really important moment for us from the conversations that are being had, convenings that we're hosting, and just the relationships that you can build at Davos and I love being here at the Equality Lounge. One of our favorite places as well. Tell us about Foreign Policy Magazine. What is the magazine's mission? It's been around for a long time, and I think it really has a unique reputation in terms of what it does and the things that it covers. But tell us in your words, what does it mean? What's the mission? What's the value prop that it offers to readers? We have been around for over 50 years, so it's a very well-established reputable magazine that covers global affairs and geopolitics. And our mission really is to explain the world to our readers, to bring the world to them, to really go a lot deeper than the typical headlines that you'll see in most major news organizations. Our audience is already consuming a lot of those major media outlets. So they're coming to us for that deeper dive into not just what happened, but why it happened and what it could mean for the future. Our latest issue that's actually being distributed at Davos is on the Ukraine war. So not about the war itself necessarily, but what we can take from the lessons that we're learning from this current conflict. When you think of the role of the magazine just in today's world, tell us how it really stands apart in terms of the value, the content that it offers, and not only in the magazine, but as you said, in the events and other ways to bring that content to life. Most people know us as a magazine. We've been around for very many years. I mentioned 50 years. So most people do know us as bringing so much institutional knowledge and analysis to global affairs. But what often people don't know is that we are much more than that. And we've really diversified our offerings to be a multi-component, multimedia publication, really leaning into digital media, but also convenings, bringing people together, bringing the world's foremost experts and leaders together to have really important conversations about what's happening in the world. And bringing all of those assets that we have at our disposal together. So leveraging our analytics department and our podcast studios and the journalists that do incredible reporting day in and day out. Were you always interested in foreign affairs? 
I have, yeah. It's hard not to be. I'm actually Cuban-American and was born in Cuba, but raised in Hialeah, which is a suburb of Miami, and it's three-quarters Cuban or Cuban-American, highest Cuban-American population in the country of any city. It's really hard not to be interested in geopolitics and politics when you have that kind of upbringing. My father was a political prisoner in Cuba, so it was personal, but it was also all around me growing up. Wow, what was that like? How did your family make it through that time? How did he make it through that time? So he was a political prisoner in Cuba before I was born, so I don't have personal experience with that. But it was hard. I mean, he doesn't talk about it to this day. He was there for over 10 years. There's a very personal relationship with Cuba and politics and really understanding what the breakdown of democracy can do to communities and to populations feels like such a personal mission for you to take in terms of his experience into your work and wanting to really understand the world and bring that to other people. Tell us about your early career in journalism and how you came to that field. Why did that interest you? Always loved to read. Loved journalism and media. And I was on my high school newspaper and yearbook. I ended up being editor-in-chief of my college newspaper. And so it had always been a calling and a mission for me. And even back when I was starting out, I was really discouraged from pursuing that kind of career because even 20 years ago or more was not necessarily the career path that an immigrant family would want you to take, right? My parents wanted me to be a lawyer or a doctor, which is what a lot of immigrant parents want their kids to be really ambitious and really interested in following my passion. So I decided to go for it. I remember taking some journalism classes at my college and there was an adjunct professor who worked at the Miami Herald. And he was one of the first people who really made such a difference in my life in terms of inspiring me to be even more ambitious than I had been. So I was a college newspaper editor looking for real life journalism experience and had been trying to apply and get my foot in the door at a small community newspaper. And I told him like the editor wasn't giving me the time of day and what advice do you have? And he said, well, have you thought about working at the Miami Herald? And I thought, well, no. (laughs) And so it was going from trying to apply for a job with a small community newspaper and then him opening my eyes to the fact that that was something I could really aspire to. And so I got an internship at the Miami Herald and I ended up working there for a year and a half and getting great experience during college and using that experience to further my career. That is great. And were there any writers or any topics that were particularly influential to you as you were starting out? I really looked up to a lot of the female journalists that I saw. This was before my time. There's a famous crime writer in Miami named Edna Buchanan, and she was just such an inspiration for me, such a force of nature and incredible writer. And so I looked up to her career. I started out covering crime early in my career and so aspired to be like her. And got to work with other really incredible female journalists. There's a woman named Sally Keston who semi-retired and then started a watchdog newspaper in Asheville, North Carolina, and is kicking butt right now and getting people arrested. I got to work with people like that and really learn from them. And so it was just an incredible experience to have early in my career. So tell us about a career pivot you had away from journalism per se, but into still writing and media, but on the business side. Yeah, so I was a congressional reporter. I was in Washington, D.C. in the mid-2000s. If you follow media, you'll know that in 2005, there was a real sharp decline in revenue for newspapers. We've seen, I think we've lost about a quarter of our newspapers to date. 
since 2005. And so I was starting to feel those declines as a daily news reporter and looking around and thinking, this is the industry that I love and what can I do and how do I make an impact? And so I decided to go to business school and my sort of mission at the time and the thinking at the time was that I was going to go save journalism. Go to business school and save journalism, find new revenue models and figure out a way to revitalize the industry. And so I went to Georgetown and got an MBA and that was the initial thought. Sort of thought about leaving journalism altogether when I was in business school, but couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. It's in my blood. And so I decided to go and pursue that initial ambition that I had to join the leadership ranks. And that's kind of what I had in mind as I was going into business school. And so I've been doing that kind of work ever since. So would you say straddling between being able to write or being still interested in content, but also being able to work on the business side of publications? Really interesting journey, especially now at foreign policy. I joined about four and a half years ago. We've really just completely diversified our revenue streams. In that small amount of time, we went from, I mentioned foreign policy is historic publication that's been around for 50 years, but at the same time, it really does feel like a startup because we were reinventing our business models. And so when I joined, we were largely supported by subscription dollars. And now we are much more diversified and so bring in probably about half our revenue from other models as well. Your original goal at business school is really coming true and the way you're able to apply that knowledge. Were they changing well before the pandemic came about? And what did the pandemic do to maybe accelerate some of those changes? Yeah, it did, absolutely. So the pandemic, from a readership perspective, brought on so many more new readers who were now really interested in geopolitics and really understanding global health from a completely different angle. And it also brought a lot more interest in engaging with publications from a digital media perspective. So it accelerated our events business. We were able to pivot really quickly to virtual events. People wanted to connect when they couldn't. And so I think being a publication that explains the world to our readers, but also brings people together, brings connection, was really vital during the pandemic. And we've seen a lot of growth and continue to accelerate that growth. That's so interesting. And when you were describing before how foreign policy covers things like healthcare now, it seems so interesting to me. I never would have thought about that. I would have thought it's diplomacy, it's politics, of course, it's relationships between countries. But healthcare is such an interconnected area now, I think, as we've seen with COVID. And so it's interesting to hear you describe that that is a topic that would now be covered. Just going to climate change as well, that is a geopolitical issue as well. And so many of the issues that we're grappling with today have significant real implications for citizens in specific countries, but also the relationships between countries. It's really an interesting time to be a foreign policy. I'd love to hear about some of the projects that you're working on, especially this Her Power initiative. Very interesting to me, of course. Tell us about that. What's the goal there? I created Her Power about four and a half years ago, and it really started as an extension of our coverage, being able to bring people together to talk about a variety of issues around gender equity and women's leadership, that came about because we were looking around and thinking women have such an important role to play in politics, in, in development, in the economy. Publications aren't covering women or paying attention to these issues in the way that they should be. We thought we had an important role to play to bring these issues to light. 
started an initiative to really cover gender from a journalism and analysis perspective, but then also wanted to have that ability to bring people together in person to talk about these important issues that affect people, whether you're a man or a woman. And so we started the convening in 2019. It was just such an incredible gathering of women, about 500 women and men in the room, had such an incredible series of conversations at that time and wanted to continue to build on it. And then the pandemic hit. And actually, we were able to continue those convenings in the virtual space. But what I'm really excited about is that last year in December, we were able to come back in person and have women at the highest levels talking about their careers, inspiring each other, making new connections. And so it's something that I'm really proud of. We've done a lot of gender equity work. We just had a convening in Davos on Monday with our editor-in-chief and Mark Sussman from the Gates Foundation and others. The CEO of the Bank of Kigali was one of our speakers. The topic was really about the impact that putting capital in the hands of women can really have. And you see that when women join the economy, they can really have an impact of billions of dollars in GDP if we were to close that gender gap. So you're focusing more on women in terms of the content. What about women as the creators of the content, the reporters or the editors? You also see more women actually helping to further the story? Yes. So we have a great partnership with an organization called The Fuller Project. They are a network of female correspondents all over the world who write about gender equity and maternal health and sexual violence and conflict and the way that impacts women around the world. And we publish a lot of their work, and we're really proud of that work. That's terrific. Do you see women, you're judging from early in your career, where you said there were some women, not too many, and now, are you seeing more women in the field? Does it feel more balanced or still far to go? I think we still have a long way to go. And I think it's not just about the women in the field. When you look at women in leadership positions, there's still such a huge gap in media, but you see that across the board as well. So as the world is changing and there's so many things you could be covering in foreign policy, how do you decide what it is to work on, what projects to prioritize? We meet, we discuss, we brainstorm. Obviously, we're actually a quite small organization. We punch above our weight and have incredible influence around the world. But we are a small publication. And we think about what are some of the most important topics that are happening that are affecting the world. Where can we pick our spots and bring something a little bit different to the table, bring a unique perspective? What are some of the challenges that you have had to overcome in terms of your own leadership, whether that's here at the magazine or in prior roles that you've had? Right now at the magazine, I mentioned we're a fairly small organization, but with large ambition. So I think the biggest challenge for us is doing so much with limited resources. And so that's a leadership challenge. How do we cover the world? How do we bring top-notch analysis and audio and incredible projects to the world and not completely burning out our staff and without running so hard? And that's something that I'm struggling with on a personal level, right? Because I think the show is about ambition, right? And so when you have a lot of ambition, you just go, go, go. And how do you take a step back and kind of think about Do we need to do all of it? And does it have to be 100% perfect or can it be good enough? Well, tell us about ambition in terms of what that means to you. You said you're ambitious. I love that you use that word. What are you ambitious for? What have you been ambitious for in the past? 
For me, it's about making an impact. So I've always been ambitious in terms of having an impact on the communities I work in or the organizations I work for. And so it's not about necessarily a title or money or anything like that, but am I making a difference in the world? And so that's what it means to me to be ambitious. I think one of the things that you did in launching The Hill Latino clearly is really a signal of ambition for a specific community. Can you tell us about that, your work there, what you did to launch The Hill Latino and why that was important to you? So I mentioned earlier I'm Cuban-American, so I'm Hispanic. I take a lot of pride in that background and my heritage. One in five Americans right now are Hispanic. And again, going back to underserved and underreported, undercovered communities, whether that's women, whether that's Hispanic people in the U.S., it's important to really understand the issues that they're grappling with, to cover these trends and shifts in the population and what it means for politics, what it means for the economy, for businesses. I mentioned earlier in the week that we started out with a conversation on women. I also attended, there's a small Hispanic delegation here in Davos, and it's important that we're here and that we're represented and that we talk about the incredible contributions that we're making to the U.S. economy. What do you think that meant to the community, having that kind of coverage? It was so gratifying and validating to the U.S. Hispanic community to have a publication that covered Congress and that covered the highest forms of leadership and political debate in the country. And to have that publication say Hispanics matter so much that we are going to devote resources specifically to cover the issues that are important to them beyond immigration and beyond some of the talking points that you hear in a lot of mainstream media. So we were covering the Hispanic delegation and we were covering health disparities and a whole host of issues. And so I'm proud to say it's still going strong. There's a great reporter that we hired to lead the editorial efforts, Rafael Bernal, and he's still doing incredible work. And I'm really proud that that continues beyond me. And so the visibility you raise about other issues that were very important to the community, do you see those issues taking on now a life of their own? Are people gravitating towards solutions? What's happening as a result now of that publication being out there? It definitely put a spotlight on the Hispanic community for politicians who weren't Hispanic and weren't necessarily thinking about the Hispanic community in such a nuanced way. You might see a lot of members of Congress who equate being Hispanic and thinking about Hispanic issues with immigration and that's it. And so thinking about what the community is interested in, how to serve the community better. So I'm really proud of the impact that we've had. That was terrific. And so when you left the Hill to go to Foreign Policy magazine, what was that decision like for you? Tell us about how you thought about it. Was that hard for you? How did you take a risk, so to speak, and leave? It was a tough decision because I was really proud of what I had started at the Hill Latino. Really excited to see that continue to grow. But foreign policy actually came knocking and recruited me. And given the fact that I had been so interested in geopolitics and world affairs and international reporting, it was just too interesting and too good an opportunity not to take it. But it was a leap of faith, an entirely different area that I hadn't necessarily worked in before. I had specialized really sort of a large chunk of my career in national politics and Congress. And so it was really expanding my boundaries and opportunities. So it was a really exciting move. It almost feels like full circle for you in terms of your interests in the foreign policy landscape and just international relations, which is super exciting. Thank you, Diana. It's great to talk with you. Your work's fantastic and really will bring so much education and insight to so many people. It's great to be here. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to my conversation with Diana. It was fascinating to hear how her personal experience fueled her professional ambitions and influenced her to create The Hill Latino. She continues to make an impact now at Foreign Policy Magazine. Check out its podcast, Hero, The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. You can find the link in this episode description. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.